2: We guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now.
3: On this episode of Newt's World, the Vikings, those mythic, larger-than-life Scandinavians who left their homeland in search of opportunity and would reshape Europe and the United States. In his new book, The Viking Heart, How Scandinavians Conquered the World, Arthur Herman tells a compelling historical narrative with cutting-edge archaeological discoveries and DNA research to trace the epic story of this remarkable and truly diverse people. And he shows how the Scandinavian experience has universal meaning and how we can still be inspired by their spirit and strength of community today. So I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Arthur Herman. He is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and author of nine books, including the New York Times bestseller, How the Scots Invented the Modern World, and Gandhi and Churchill, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. thank you for joining me to talk about the Viking heart, how Scandinavians conquered the world. Now, to be fair, you are Norwegian descent on both sides of your family tree, aren't you?
4: The rules of full disclosure insist that I do fess up to that. I mean, on my father's side, there's also German as well as Norwegian. It's my great-great-grandfather who emigrated from Norway to the United States in the 1850s. And then my mother's parents came over from Norway. But the book, as you know, is not just about Norwegians. It's also about Swedes, about Danes, about Finns and Icelanders, as well as the Vikings. So what I wanted to do was to give equal time to all the different Scandinavian ethnic groups so that everyone would recognize the qualities of diversity and inclusion in a discussion about the Vikings and their descendants.
3: I should tell you, by the way, that my wife, Callista went to Luther College in Decorah, Iowa, which is a Norwegian-related college. In fact, her band went and played in Norway when she was in college. And the Norwegian Museum is in Decorah, so she has great ties, although she personally is Polish and Swiss, so she has no direct, immediate tie to the Scandinavians. But, you know, when you talk about it and you weave them all together, they become a fascinating cultural pattern. And I'm curious, what inspired you not just to write about Norway, but to write about the concept of the Viking heart?
4: Well, I'll tell you, it was a conversation I had with my uncle, Norman, after how the Scots invented the modern world came out and became a New York Times bestseller. I was bestseller in the British Isles as well. By the way, it's the 20th anniversary for the publication of the the Scots book. So the, this is timely to have the Viking heart. But he said to me, so you're written about the Scots, now what about the Vikings? And I mulled that over and I thought about how would I do a book about the Vikings? And not just the Vikings as a part of medieval history and European history, but maybe the role that their descendants came to play in shaping America and the cultural skill set, which is really what the book's about, Newt, the cultural skill set that they brought over with them from their Scandinavian homeland and that had such an impact in shaping not just the Midwest and the areas that they settled in America, but also American culture from the late 19th century on until the present. And so 20 years later, This is the result. My Uncle Norman isn't with us anymore, but I'm hoping that he'll still be pleased with the result.
3: You talk about the Viking heart, but as I understand it, they actually never called themselves Vikings.
4: No, they didn't. Viking is like a verb. It describes the decision to set out on an expedition, usually an expedition of gathering loot from those not strong enough to defend their own possessions. The word itself comes from the Old Norse word vik, which means a creek or a river, and what it really reflects, I think, as a part of the Scandinavian experience is the fact that these were peoples in this harsh, inhospitable part of the world, Scandinavia, who learned very early on how to make water their friend, the river courses, lakes, the seas, and of course, eventually, the Atlantic Ocean.
3: So, the famous English prayer which was supposedly said for 800 years after the last raid, actually ends up protect us from the Norsemen, not protect us from the Vikings?
4: (laughs) That's right, the Vikings. And I suppose at that point, many Norsemen would say, hey, that's only a part-time activity. We do other stuff too, you know. And of course, that's also part of the point of my book. And here the TV series, I'm afraid, give us a slightly distorted picture about what the Viking Age was like and what the Scandinavian tribes who launched themselves out across Europe and into Eastern Europe and even into the Mediterranean were really like, they weren't really the kind of super warriors, they weren't the invincible marauders that we sometimes realize. They were farmers first, arable land being a very scarce commodity in Scandinavia. They were fishermen, they were animal herdsmen. What we think of as going Viking, the Viking expeditions, were ways in which the peoples from this underpopulated area and poor resourced area were able to get the commodities and the goods that they needed to make their lives more livable and more bearable. And what they discovered was, as I explained in the book, is that after the death of Charlemagne in 814, the frontiers of Europe were permeable. And just as we know in our own age, when frontiers and borders become permeable, others will take advantage of it. And that's exactly what the Vikings did for 200 years.
3: Correct me if I'm wrong. If you look at a map, they both come around to the west into the Mediterranean past Gibraltar and end up in Constantinople. And they come around from the east and come down the river system through Russia and end up in Constantinople. I mean, for a bunch of farmers, their reach is astonishing.
4: It is amazing, isn't it? And... You have to realize, too, that these are for those who are engaged in these expeditions. These are, in many cases, ventures totally into the unknown. You know, they simply trust their nautical skill, trust their boatload of friends and family that are going with them, and they set out to see what can be found. If not loot, then the possibility of trade, and then ultimately land for settlement. By and large, the division of labor runs like this. What happens is the Norwegians and the Danes tend to swing west using the North Sea, expand out to the British Isles, and then, of course, eventually across the Atlantic, but also down along the coast of France and Spain and into the Mediterranean. The Swedes are the ones who really target the Baltic region and then use the river networks in Eastern Europe and Russia To get down to the Black Sea and then opening up the markets and the routes for trade with the more advanced civilizations of Byzantium and then of Islam. In fact, really, Islam, I don't think, would have been able to really sustain its golden age if the Vikings weren't there supplying the thing that the Muslim rulers and the caliphs most needed, which was human labor through the slave trade.
3: And that's mostly because the Vikings are bringing them slaves, right? The Vikings aren't becoming slaves.
4: No, although, of course, in the case of the Byzantine emperors, Viking mercenaries will become their most trusted bodyguards, the Varangian guard, as it's called. And they will be ones that will be entrusted with the physical security and political stability for Byzantine emperors when they feel that their throne is, should we say, on shaky ground and threats come from inside as well as outside their empire. But yes, it's a story of 200 years of almost incredible rapid expansion, all made possible by the nautical technology that they have, the long ships, and then also their amazing ability to conduct what we would call today expeditionary warfare, landing where they're least expected, taking on enemies and running and and grabbing what they need or doing business that they need, and then disappearing before the authorities can get organized to try and defend their
3: territory. You know, I notice you talk about the... Norwegians and Danes going west, the Swedes going east and southeast. But what about the Finns? You mentioned the Finns earlier, which, frankly, given their linguistic background, surprised me. I wouldn't have thought of them as part of the Viking heart.
4: I think they are, actually, new, because what we come to realize is, is that a lot of these Viking expeditions, you set off with who you can find who's willing to go and set out on these expeditions. So it wasn't unusual for Viking expeditions by the Danes and Norwegians to pick up British adventurers. Scots, we know, went for the first voyage across the Atlantic uh, to North America. And for the Swedes, being in close proximity to the Finns, although they are ethnically and also linguistically distinct, the two countries have a very, very close relationship all the way through to the modern era. So it's not surprising that when you have a boatload of Swedish adventurers setting out down the Dnieper or founding Kiev, which was a key Viking capital, as a matter of fact, in the ninth and 10th centuries. It's not surprising that you would find Finns accompanying them and Finns being part of the marauding party, part of the trading network that they're going to set up. And of course, Finland also too had a lot of resources, forestry, the kinds of animal skins that were important commodities for trading for these Nordic adventurers as well.
3: Did you get a similar relationship with Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, or are they really oriented in a totally different way? The
4: relationship tends to be a lot more hostile over the course of the centuries, really. And there you find that it's more conflict and conquest, especially in the later year, the post-Viking Age, when the kingdoms that emerged from the Viking Age in Scandinavia, both Denmark and also Sweden, do their best to carve out their own empires along the Baltic coast and are in conflict with Estonians and Latvians, but also the Poles, of course, and then eventually the
3: Russians. In your model, the real age of Viking dominance is what, 800 to about a thousand?
4: Still about a thousand. I think historians usually mark the end of the Viking Age. It was 1066. 1066 when two decisive battles take place in England. The first in the north, which is the Battle of Stamford Bridge. The other, the Battle of Hastings in the south of England. I described them both in the Viking heart and how they arose. The Battle of Hastings, of course, is the more famous one because William the Conqueror, a Norman, a descendant of the Vikings, uses the battle to take the throne of England and defeat King Harold and the Anglo-Saxons. But Harold scores almost as significant and important a victory over the last great Viking king, who was also named Harold, Harold of Norway, at the Battle of Stamford Bridge. And the Battle of Stamford Bridge really brings an end to the heyday of Viking kings, of Viking chieftains. And I think we can really say from that point on, the story of the Scandinavia becomes part of the rest of Europe as opposed to separate from or outliers from the mainstream of Western and European civilization. But of course, the other big change that comes as I describe it in the book, the other big change that that marks an end to the Viking Age is the coming of Christianity. That is a watershed event for the evolution of Scandinavia, for the evolution of what I call the Viking heart as well as the pagan past fades into the realm of myth and epic poems, but Christianity with its new set of values, respect for the individual, compassion for others, the golden rule now become part of the Scandinavian culture and ultimately part of the Scandinavian character.
3: In the high point of Viking activity, part of the reason you get Normandy is that, if I understand it correctly, the French king decides it's cheaper to basically lease Normandy to a Viking if he will then protect the Seine River and block the Vikings from going up to continuously sack Paris.
4: You've got it exactly right. The French king decided it was, if you can't beat him, buy him off. And that's exactly what he did with the Viking chieftain Rolf. In France, as Norman history is known Norm, Norm as Rollo, but his real Norse name was Rolf. And Rolf and his warriors are bought off by getting a grant of territory north of France, which becomes known as the land of the Northmen, or Normandy. And so the rise of the Normans, including those Norman... Knights arise from Viking warriors who settled down, acquired land, and became a power in themselves in France, and then become a power in Christendom, and become the great conquerors in pushing back the Saracen and Muslim occupiers in southern Italy and Sicily.
3: So to show that I truly am a creature of popular culture, is Rollo really the younger brother of Ragnar Lofbrook, or is that all just a function of needing to fit into a fictional tale?
4: <laughs> I think it's probably safe to say he's not. Historically, it probably was someone named Lagnar. He may well have had the name Harry Bridges, which is what Ladbrook means. But he becomes a sort of a figure around which a whole series of extraordinary adventures and accomplishments and conquests swirl. And he becomes sort of an anecdote magnet in the Viking sagas and later on in the histories that the Icelandic poets put together, particularly the history of Danish kings and so on. I think he's at best a semi-mythical figure, but the character Rolf is real. Although there was no written treaty, we know that the deal was struck in 9-11 to give him and his warriors that swath of territory in northern France. And over time, the Normans become a power onto themselves, not only conquering England, but also expanding down into Italy and beyond. They bring the macho side of the Viking heart. They bring it into the fore of Western civilization.
3: Somehow the Normans go from being these light ship-borne raiders who almost always operate on foot to developing, in a sense, the earliest and most powerful of the horse-borne knights who become almost unstoppable as long as they're on open land.
4: You've got it exactly correct. The Normans become the armed horsemen par excellence of the early Middle Ages.
3: Then how does that happen, though? I mean, that's an enormous shift in culture and in structure and in the economy.
4: It's very typical of the Vikings, actually, because if you look at the history of the Viking raiders, even before they occupied Normandy, of the things you come to realize is, is that they're extremely adaptable to the battlefield conditions under which they have to fight. And one of the big shocks that came to the defenders of Charlemagne's empire when the Danes and Norwegians started their forays into their territory was how skilled the Vikings really were as horsemen, as mounted warriors, just as they were shocked to discover that these sea-going longships worked just as well going up river and taking advantage of river networks wherever they were provided. And if, if the rivers weren't navigable, they would lift them up, carry them across to where they could be used. The most extraordinary example that I mentioned in the book is, of this kind of adaptability and versatility is when Rurik, who is the Swedish conqueror who really establishes the principality of Novgorod and then Kiev, and then eventually the Kingdom of Russia, when his successor launches an expedition against Constantinople at the very beginning of the 10th century. You know, they arrive, of course, by longship. They find that they can't get the Byzantines from the seaward side. The defenses are too strong. So what does he do? He has his men beach their longships, attach wheels to the longships, and then use their sails for propulsion in order to attack the Byzantine capital from the landward side. As far as I know, it's the first development of land tanks in the history of warfare. But think about someone, that creative, who sort of says, okay, we can't use our ships in the normal way. We'll use it in an extraordinary way by turning them into platforms for land warfare. And of course, you know, being in a sense fortified from attack because you're really using this as a form of, of land attack. This is one of the things that's so extraordinary about the Vikings is their immense adaptability, their ability to shift, not just on a tactical, but also on a strategic level, and ultimately to find ways to fit into the dominant culture, which is what the Normans finally did. They shed their nautical skills the culture that had brought them there from their original homeland in Norway. But they become the masters of the techniques and technologies of the dominant culture and rise to become really a kind of ruling class for the Middle Ages.
3: When you think about it, I'm curious, is there a population explosion underway? Was the weather such that you suddenly have large numbers of surplus young males in this 200-year period? You know what? If you
4: look at the history of immigration generally, not just the United States, but demographically around the world, surplus populations always pose a problem. How do you feed those mouths? And what we conjecture is, and the archaeological evidence is there, that there was probably a period of warming at the very beginning of the Viking Age. The populations grew. Don't forget, too, the Vikings are polygamous. The head of the household has multiple wives producing multiple children. Resources are scarce. The population is growing. What are you going to do with all those younger sons and younger daughters? Well, one of the things that you do is you set them off to sea to go find new lives for themselves or to bring back the goods that will make the community prosperous and allow it to survive in the kind of harsh climate that it faces in wintertime and beyond. So, yeah, the population pressure certainly played a role in pushing the Vikings out to go look for new lands and to look for new opportunity. We have to realize, too, there were enormous risks involved. And it's probably a pretty good estimate that for every three Viking longships that set out, going Viking every spring, probably only two came back.
3: The reason I ask in part is the Mongols have a similar experience in that there's a period of rain in the Gobi and you suddenly have this explosion both of horses and of young men and it's the base of Temujin's ability to become Genghis Khan because he now has an army that has to go somewhere. And it's a sort of a very similar kind of, if you will, uprooting by demographic necessity that has a huge, huge impact.
4: It's a great comparison. And the same thing happens with the Turks as well, and the parallels between Viking history and Turkish history are quite extraordinary. The big difference, of course, Nude, is the dispersion for the Mongols and the Turks is on land, whereas the avenues for dispersion for the Vikings and for Scandinavians is by sea.
3: Yes, and if they had not been able to adapt to that, they would have been trapped and probably had starvation. I have a very good friend who is currently studying Old Norse. We were chatting, and she said that If you look at the DNA in Iceland, which, of course, has had this huge project, something like 60% of the women in Iceland actually have Irish background. And her presumption is that the Vikings were raiding into Ireland, grabbing the women and taking them to Iceland.
4: Yeah, grabbing or inviting them to go along. We don't really know to what degree this was coercion. We know that the Vikings, especially the Norwegians, had all kinds of settlements along the coast of Ireland. That DNA evidence, again, suggests that we've got this wholesale sort of ethnic mixing that's taking place thanks to these Viking expeditions here. We talked about earlier about the Finns, right, becoming integrated into the Swedish expeditions. At the same time, you've got the Irish and Scots who become integrated and become part of... Viking expeditions heading west to Iceland, and then Greenland, and then eventually North America. And we also have, too, the Vikings themselves settling in the British Isles, especially in northern England, where, in effect, as I point out in the book, at one point, something close to two-thirds of the Kingdom of England is Danish territory, with its own laws, its own language and its own population, who are hard to trace DNA-wise, Newt, because the DNA between Anglo-Saxon and Norwegian-Scandinavian is so close because, of course, the and saxons originally came over from Scandinavia that it's really tough to draw the line about who is really a descendant of Vikings, who is a descendant of, of, of an Anglo-Saxon conquerors from 400 years earlier.
3: You know, it's really an interesting rewrite of English history to think about the notion that this island, which since 1066 has prided itself on not being invaded, in fact, for the previous thousand years, just had wave after wave after wave of people.
4: It is an extraordinary thing. And of course, even after 1066, the threat of invasion continues to haunt the British Isles from that point on, from the Spanish to the Germans. It's an easy pickings for an invader. And until the English were strong enough to be able to defend themselves, they were gonna find themselves to be the prey for whoever it is could find a safe landing on the coast and then work their way inward.
1: No purchase necessary. prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write.
4: Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, deputy opinion editor.
2: And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu.
4: Follow Impromptu now,
2: wherever you listen.
3: I worked years ago with a writer who wrote science fiction. And his technique was to get the Icelandic sagas and then just translate them into a science fiction story. And he said the sagas are so rich, so violent, so fascinating that you could literally just you know, earn a living out of explaining the future as though it was occurring in Iceland. It does seem to me that Iceland is different than the mainland Scandinavian countries.
4: Well, you know, what your friend did, that technique, is almost exactly what J.R.R. R. Tolkien did with his Lord of the Rings trilogy. I mean, the warp and woof of the Lord of the Rings is the Norse sagas. Tolkien really saw the Lord of the Rings trilogy as a way to snatch Norse mythology and Norse literature, including the sagas, out of the hands of the Nazis, because the Nazis had used it and mobilized that mythology as part of a racist ideology, that this was about the Aryan race and that this was about pure Nordic stock and the achievements that they had brought about. Tolkien saw that as insidious, he saw it as historically wrong, and he wanted the Lord of the Rings to be a way in which he could recapture the real majesty of these works. But Iceland is isolated. It becomes a kind of a greenhouse in which older Viking customs and stories are able to be preserved without being swept up and dispersed into the mainstream of medieval civilization. And it's a tight knit community as well and if you go through the Icelandic sagas which are extraordinary works of literature I think probably the only really readable medieval literature that there is for modern readers what you come to realize is it's really about the families and about the quarrels and the feuds and the lives that those families and clans lived on that very barren and exposed island in the middle of the
3: Atlantic Iceland comes across as a family-centric rather than national system.
4: I think that's a very acute judgment. And it's what made their democracy work, you know. I think their national assembly lays claim, I think justifiably to be the oldest democracy in the world. And I don't think that kind of participatory system could work as well as it does and as long as it has if there hadn't been a strong sense of family-based or we could say clan-based community that held Icelanders together, wherever they came from, whether they were of Irish descent or Scots or Norwegians, it didn't matter. You were part of this community. And the community holds together is what makes it possible to survive in a place like that and in a landscape like that and in isolation like that. And that's all reflected in those Icelandic sagas as well.
3: With all the technologies of the modern world, is it your sense that the Icelanders are still largely a clan-based system?
4: I would say that it's still very much an insider's game, let's put it that way. And I think they take great pride in being distinct even from the other Scandinavian societies and cultures. And given the small population, it's one in which you have the ability to maintain personal contacts, persist over time, and reach back into history, right? I mean, it's a population of less than half a million people compared to uh, Sweden's
3: 10 million. I get the sense, too, that they were poor enough that they weren't particularly worth raiding.
4: <laughs> I think that's also a part of it as well.
3: But they were part of a trading network
4: that reached out across the other side of the North Atlantic to the west to the earliest Viking settlements that we know about there in Newfoundland, but also to Greenland. There was a triangular trading network. Greenland, Iceland back to the British Isles, and then to Norway, that Iceland was very much a part of. It has commodities that were in demand, and that's how the Icelanders keep themselves going.
3: Why did that trading network not extend to Native Americans? We
4: don't really know to what extent it did. I mean, there are goods that turn up in grave sites in Greenland, as well as Norway, which must have come from Native American sources, crafts, and so on. But my own guess is is that as the Viking Age waned, and as the focus for the Norsemen really became less on breaking out from Western civilization, from European civilization and becoming integrated it, they lost interest in what was happening further to the West. And they'll leave it to the likes of Christopher Columbus, 400 years later, to think about what is it that really lies out there on the other side of the coast of Portugal and Spain.
3: With their extraordinary mobility, they must have had this sense of the margins of the world. I mean, they don't really go down the African coast. They're really sort of drawn back again and again to places that are already civilized.
4: I think that's a good point. And I think part of it is because that's where the money can be made and where land can be you know, easily obtained whether it's in northern England or Ireland or Normandy or in the heart of what's today Ukraine, around Kiev. In the case of the Viking, you look at Viking myth, right? The cosmology of the Norse myth is very much divided into the known and the unknown. That the known is the world that surrounds the gods and men. It's familiar. But all around them is this realm of the unknown. And the unknown is not a place which is a forbidden zone or taboo in any kind of way. It's where you venture out and have interactions with people you've never dealt with before. So there was always a sense of what is familiar and what is unfamiliar. These are permeable boundaries. And I don't think you would see the Vikings engage in these kinds of far-reaching far-flung expeditions if there hadn't been the sense that what lies beyond the horizon isn't something terrible, isn't something to dread, but something to go out and meet and to find, if not new loot, maybe even a life for yourself and your family. And, And that's one of the primary drivers, I think, for what I call the Viking heart, is that willingness to go out beyond the horizon to venture and to take on the unknown.
3: So... When you look at Normandy or Ukraine, to what extent are they a thin layer of governing on top of a pre-existing native population?
4: I think that that's almost certainly true, particularly true in, the, in, the, in, in Ukraine or in the kingdom of the Rus, as they were called, the Rus being the descendants of the Swedish. The men who row is where the term comes from. And again, a tribute to their nautical skills. And we know in the case of the Rus that they very quickly adopt the culture, the dress, and the language of the Slavic peoples around them. What they leave behind is really more in the realm of, let's say, archaeology, as opposed to a long-standing cultural legacy. You could argue something is similar with Normandy, in which the main mark that they leave is probably place names across northern France. But the stamp that they leave as, from a political standpoint, is one that is hugely significant for the shaping of medieval civilization and for drawing the boundaries of Christendom. And I think that's one of the key aspects of this, Newton. It's become unfashionable to talk about Christendom, but it was an part of what made European history, of made Western civilization. And the descendants of the Vikings, whether they're Normans or the Rus. The Vikings themselves become the standard-bearers for that Christendom against its adversaries, whether it's Islam or whether it's the pagan threats coming out of the Eastern European tribes, the Slavic tribes as well. So they're an integral part of European civilization, both as adventurers but also as great political leaders and rulers. And we just can't leave that out when we think about what the Scandinavian legacy is to history, into the shaping of our own world.
3: One last question, which is about the power of structures to change things. If I remember correctly, part of what made the Normans so expansionist was that they had a very firm rule that the oldest son basically inherited the land, the second son went into the church, and the younger sons were supposed to go out adventuring to places like Sicily. Is that relatively accurate?
4: that is roughly accurate. Within Scandinavia itself, usually land was subdivided among the sons. It was one of the ways to (laughs) prevent some degree of competition for control over the farm or over the estates. And the Germanic tribes that came down from Scandinavia tended to follow that custom as well. The problem is, is that when you've got 10 to 12 sons, even if you divide the land equally, that's a pretty small portion to make a living or to build a family. So, yes, that became the rule that when you had a lot of sons, like the famous Doteville family, distinguished Norman Knight, Doteville has 12 sons. What are they going to do? Well, what they're going to do is they're going to take their swords and head east to look for a ways in which to make a living for themselves and to build a new life for themselves. And this is what the Normans do. It's an inheritance of what the Vikings themselves had done in their earlier time. And it becomes a trademark for the way in which what we call the Norman conquests take place in the Middle Ages. There are always younger sons who are trained for warfare, who understand that their prowess in arms is the key to financial as well as political power, and who then launch themselves out into the world in order to bring those skills to bear on the world around them. And that was definitely the case with the Normans and their huge expansion. Again, like the Vikings, enormously rapid, enormously quick expansion across the central to the eastern Mediterranean, where they become also key players in the development of the Crusades.
3: Listen, Arthur, I want to thank you for joining me as somebody who's been fascinated by the Vikings. Your new book, The Viking Heart, How Scandinavians Conquered the World, is going to be a great success. It is fascinating. It is fascinating. And I really recommend it to our listeners. And they can find a link to order the book on our show page at newtsworld.com. And I just want to thank you for your continued efforts to bring sophisticated ideas to the general public in a way that they both get educated and entertained in the same volume. And you're doing amazing work. And I treasure you as a friend and as a fellow citizen. And I admire you as an author.
4: That praise means a great deal to me. And I thank you. And I'm delighted we had this time to talk.
3: Thank you to my guest, Arthur Herman. You can get a link to his new book, The Viking Heart, How Scandinavians Conquered the World, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
2: WORK. Zumo Play.